0: Hello, everyone, and Happy Holidays! This is a special edition of The Social Contract. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert. Welcome to The Holiday Edit. Today we have an extra special treat. We'll get to hear from author George S. Corey and the artist Cleo, creators of The Social Contract podcast. They'll be reflecting on Season 1 of The Social Contract... But first, it is a rare and profound honor to be able to welcome a true icon to our podcast. So it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Judy Collins, yes, the Judy Collins, to the Social Contracts Holiday Edit. Christmas just came early for many of us. Judy Collins is a modern-day Renaissance woman For decades, her artistry and musical craft as a singer, songwriter, and musician have inspired audiences and fans around the world. In addition to her extraordinary career in music, Judy is also an author, musical mentor, social activist, and Academy Award-nominated filmmaker, among other things. She remains as creatively vigorous as ever, having released her first-ever album of completely original material called Spellbound earlier this year. We're Spellbound by her. Judy graciously made time to talk to the social contract. Here's some of my conversation with her. Again, thank you so much for your time and for gracing our podcast with your presence. Your album, your new album, Spellbound, which we think is dreamy, (laughs) <laughs> was just nominated for a Grammy for Best Folk Album. Congratulations. That's Thank you. It's incredible. And it's really significant that this is your very first album of all original songs. So I'm wondering if that was a choice you made, if it happened organically. What's the story of that?
1: It happened because I was in a writing frame of mind. And um, in 2016, I started, I said to my husband one day, I said, I think I'll do a 90 and 90. Sometimes I do try to do 90 poems in 90 days, mm. which gives a background, a door, into songs. And he said, well, why don't you do a 365 days, and then you'll have a whole, a whole a year worth of poems. So I did that. Wow. And at the end of the year, I thought, this has worked really well because a lot of those poems harvested out songs. Mm. And since I started writing, which was in 1966 when I met Leonard Cohen, And I recorded Suzanne, and when he heard it, he said, well, I want you to always be recording my songs, but I don't understand why you're not writing your own songs. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I wrote Since You've Asked, which was my very first song, which uh, I'm very happy about. And since then, I've written about 60 songs, which I have recorded, which Mm -hmm. are on all of my albums, scattered through the combination of me and other artists, and so when I got to the end of this year in 2016, I thought, well, I think maybe I should focus just on myself. And I had a few favorites of other artists that I was sort of put aside, and um, I've just recorded one of them. But it's mainly been focused on my own writing. So hmm. it was time. It was just time, you know. Say. Yeah. The timing is everything, so I'm hoping that that's yeah. true.
0: Well, and the universe has obviously agreed with you that it was the right time. Let's stay with Leonard Cohen for just a moment, um, who is somebody near and dear to my heart, too, and so many of us, of course. I understand that you helped Leonard Cohen get over stage fright, and in return, he taught you how to write music. Is that... Exactly.
1: Yeah, we swapped favors And his encouragement, you know, his question, it wasn't even a question. It was a statement. He said, I don't know why you're not writing your own songs. That's a very kind of uh, Greek or Roman question. It's it's not you should. Mm -hmm. It's not why don't you. It's I don't know why, (laughs) which puts it on him. I mean, Mm -hmm. he has the onus of the question, which is really interesting. So I immediately ran off to write. I wrote, since you've asked, in about 10, 20 minutes. Then the next song I started to write took me five years. So Mm -hmm. then he said to me, I want you to sing my songs. I want all the other artists to sing my songs. I won't sing them because I have a terrible voice.
2: Mm -hmm. And I said
1: to Leonard, you don't have a terrible voice. You have a unique voice. It might be a little obscure, but it's unique. That year, there was a big fundraiser going on for WBAI, our radio station in New York. Mm -hmm. And this was a big deal. This was a huge invite. It was one of those kind of all-star events, and I was invited to sing. So I said, well, I want you to come with me, and I'll put you on stage and have you sing, Suzanne, because everybody is dying to have... Have you sing the song that you wrote? No, no. He said, yes. I said, yes, yes. So I brought him to town hall, and uh, I sang a little bit, and then I said, it's your turn. You go out. And he went out on stage, (sighs) and he started to sing, and then he burst into tears and walked off the stage. Oh, wow. And said, I can't do this. And uh, I said, well, you have to go back, and I'll go with you, Mm -hmm. and I'll sing the song with you, which I did. Well, I think what he got was that, incredible thing that happens when you're singing something of your own or another song that you love but when people connect with you in the way they will in a huge auditorium that's really full Mm -hmm. really full of enthusiasm and you get that wash of clapping and Mm -hmm. and, screaming and yelling and being so happy that you get it yeah and yeah.
0: got it. It really touches your soul. It moves you. He got it. Yeah. yeah. His question to you was so open hearted and curious. I don't know why you're not well, writing it, your own so, song. You,
1: know, you have to remember that he was a monk. Mm-hmm. So he knew that the mm-hmm. direct question is not mm-hmm. effective. Yeah. Sort of the off the center, putting it on the speaker rather than the receiver. I mean, Dylan always said to me, why don't you stop singing my songs and sing your own songs? I mean, that's very directive. Yeah. But uh, the way that Leonard asked it was very, very Leonard.
0: Well, I think that you're, you were so open-hearted and there was a very equal balance in the gifts that you offered each other. So thank you we so much. We had a much. wonderful time together. We did. Yeah. Amazing. A lot of people know you for your Christmas songs and your Christmas albums. And I, over the last few days, got back into your holiday repertoire. And it was very hard to choose one that was my favorite. How do you ever choose a favorite? But the Wexford Carol is a song that I find deeply moving. And it always transports me. It is so gorgeous. Yeah. So in that impossible question, do you have a favorite? Is there one that feels most transporting or transcendent to you
1: well they're all so special and wonderful Mm. you know in the early 80s I guess it was I was on a series I think it was called Christy and Tyne Daly was playing the uh, head of the school there and um, Tyne and I would go out in the hot summer and sing Christmas (laughs) Christmas carols, <laughs> they were to stay cool. We thought it helped us because it was hot down there. <laughs> so we sang, and we sang the Wexford carol and others. And then that was when I started to put together my Christmas albums. And I like things like Good King Wenceslas mm-hmm. and uh, the Cherry Tree Carol, which is one of the more unusual ones. So uh, mm-hmm. Joseph was an old man, an old man was he when he wedded Virgin Mary in the land of Galilee. And then there are others, I love Hark the Herald, Yes, and I love, we're singing a lot to What Child is This? Mm-hmm. I always say before that, King Henry VIII had more than one hobby, and one of the things he wrote was uh, the melody to mm-hmm. What Child is This? And um, so he wrote songs as well as cutting off his wife's heads. It was a busy life. And other people. It's a busy life. An artist has a
0: busy life. Yeah, exactly.
1: exactly.
0: (laughs) I want to shift a bit. You may know that this podcast was inspired by the Presidential Conversations book series. And so, staying with the topic of presidents for a moment, I know that you've performed for John F. Kennedy and for Bill Clinton. I imagine as an artist, you're always bringing your full self to every performance, whether it's for a king or an infant. But was there something different about performing for United States presidents for you? I was talking
1: about this earlier today because it's kind of a strange coincidence. 1963, I was still in the hospital in Denver. I had tuberculosis. Hmm. So it was about five months of being uh, taken care of so March came and I got a call from my manager at that point and he said there's an event called dinner with the president and Kennedy has asked for you Hmm. so this was a big deal I flew into DC in a snowstorm I mean this was the springtime of 1963 And uh, he was going great guns, and he and Robert Kennedy was also there. So we all met them and got to shake hands with them and have our pictures taken. So it was thrilling, thrilling. And in later years, I got to know President Clinton when he was the governor. A friend of mine, Letty Pogerman, she's a wonderful writer and a very dear friend. And she called me one day in 1991, and she said, I'm coming to Chautauqua. I'm going to be speaking about children, and Hillary and Bill Clinton are coming. She works with children. He's the governor of Arkansas. So we went to Chautauqua. I did the concert. Anyway, we became close friends, and he and I and my husband and Hillary, I spent eight years going in and out of the White House as though I lived there. The first time was at the inaugural, and we didn't have tickets. We didn't have ID with us. We, We just... Oh, wow. And they, we went to the White House, and they said, oh, yeah, come on in. <laughs> and uh, we just adore him. Incredible.
0: You, as a child, had polio and spent a lot of time being treated for polio, being isolated with that painful and lonely and frightening condition. And I wonder what the relationship with your activism and your experience of pain or being in a body over which you don't have full control and you can't escape a painful or a frightening situation. You have to surrender to it at some level. Do you think there's a relationship there? Well, I do think it's a learning experience.
1: First of all, I was born an optimist. I'm very optimistic always, no matter what's going on. But the truth of the matter is that when I've had illness or injury Starting with the polio, and while you surrender and endure, you learn things about yourself that you didn't know. You certainly learn things about the world that you didn't know. And in a way, there's no other way to learn it except that being on your own in a place of a good deal of silence, a good deal of apprehension. Are they coming with the painkiller? Are they going? Am I going to have anything to eat? You know, can I actually turn over with this? This Mm -hmm. is so hard. Will somebody be here to help me? Mm -hmm. And to surrender and then do whatever it is, it was a relief. The relief of being out of touch with the world. Mm -hmm. And we all need to be out of touch. Now we we get out of touch, of course, by meditating, Mm -hmm. by taking that silence into our lives and adopting to it, adopting whether you sit by a river or whether you do the Nam-yo-renge-kyo, but always you have to find some portal to the other place.
0: I wonder if that experience of pain, illness, injury as a way of leaving the world and opening into a portal to a bigger consciousness, a greater consciousness, has that given you a sense of responsibility to translate what you have learned about yourself and the cosmos into political action? Well, Well, it must have
1: because I'm always thinking about what's going on in the world, and wondering what in the world I can do. Prayer is powerful. I believe that. I believe that. I think that the interrelationship with the cosmos, however you can send the positive force into it, is going to help. I speak about it. I talk about war, death, taxes, and the rest I try to focus on bringing beauty into the world. My job is to make people feel a sense of their inward beauty and a relaxation for a couple of hours where actually they can get away from and get into their own minds about what is bothering them and what they might be dwelling on while they're listening to me. That's, I think, the function of music is appropriately distanced from a lot of noise. You know, they're sitting in the audience. They're quiet. They can't be on their phones or they're televisions, and they're absorbing their own thoughts about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their world. That's a great service. That's why I think music will always be with us. And we have to tell stories. We know that the people who lived in the caves in ancient times had to write it down. They had to draw it down. They had to make, I'm sure they were making music Mm -hmm. with horns and pipes and things they made out of weeds and sticks, and they were finding a way to bring those vibrations of another place into the
0: cave Mm, that's beautiful james baldwin said artists are here to disturb the peace they have to disturb the peace otherwise chaos and i think that relates to that sound coming from within the cave that's our oldest communication that vibration i want to shift a bit The makers of this podcast, George Corey and the artist Cleo, they've been deeply moved by your songbook throughout many years, and standouts for them that they wanted me to thank you for include Send in the Clowns and Amazing Grace. And I have to say, I've loved Send in the Clowns since I was a child, well before I knew who you were. I knew of that song. It's just such an iconic and beautiful song, and one I learned to play on the piano when I was very little, but I wanted to talk to you about Amazing Grace. And even saying that makes me feel emotional and brings tears to my eyes because it has been sung in many different iterations by many different people, but your rendition was chosen for preservation by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, artistically significant. And I feel that that song is one that I can never sing without weeping. It's one that I obviously can't talk about without weeping. How did me that too. feel to have your rendition included in the largest library in the world, the Library of Congress? That is a huge honor. What was your response to that? Well, it's a great honor. I knew the
1: song. My grandmother taught it to me. And uh, I came about singing it because... I was involved in New York in 1969 in an encounter group, one of those old-fashioned mental health gatherings that we used to have. And uh, the encounter group that I was in was something that was run by a guy named Candy Latson. And he found his way to New York and I was at a dinner party with the Hovings. I was very close to Tom Hoving and Nancy. And uh, they invited me to dinner one night and he was there and I we talked and had a good time. And He said he was working at one of the recovery programs here, Phoenix House. He said, I'm doing encounter groups over at Phoenix House. Would you like to come and see one? And I said, sure. And then after I went, it was very powerful, very powerful. And I didn't participate. I just listened. So he started an encounter group with us. And so one night, it was getting very rowdy. And people were talking and they were acting out and they were being really abusive Mm. to one another. And so I thought, oh, I'll sing Amazing Grace because somebody in the room knows a little piece of it and everybody will know something of it. So we we all sang it and everybody calmed down. And there was no bloodshed. There was no further annoyance. People were talking in gentle voices. Mm. So it was out of the blue, which is how songs often happen with me. So we recorded it, and it was on the album Whales and Nightingales, Mm -hmm. it was called. And so it went out, of course, and it became an instant hit. It was an instant hit in England Mm -hmm. first. Then it rolled into the Billboard charts here in the States. And for a long time, I sang the song. And, of course, I loved it. It was very powerful. I've always understood that it has a power, very deep power, in which everybody can participate. It doesn't matter what what your religious background is. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim. You can get into that song. But I didn't know anything about the song other than that I loved it and that it was powerful. So one day I get a package from England from a guy named Steve Turner, And I opened it, and it's a manuscript, and it's called The Amazing Grace and the Story of John Newton. Mm -hmm. I opened the book. I read the letter. The letter said, Dear Judy, I want you to write the foreword to this book. It's the story of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He came from a terrible background. He was a slave trader. He was the captain of a slave trip, and he had a shipwreck in Derry, Ireland, and he spent the rest of his life writing hymns, the only hymnals, and he said, you're the person who brought the song back to life, because it was dying out, people were leaving it out of the hymnals, and interrupting its flow forward. So you need to write the introduction, which I did, and then I learned all about John Newton, who was a
0: marvelous and amazing man. That is incredible because I knew the story of John Newton. I didn't know your your relationship to how important that song is, but I do really appreciate and want to underscore the point that you made that that song is so powerful and it taps into a deeper consciousness that is not about what faith, if any, one comes from. It is about the sound of human yearning human gratitude, human transcendence, regardless of religious faith. Yes, it
1: always does it. You know, I have a habit of singing it at the end of my
0: shows. I'm curious what you're passionate about these days outside of your life as an artist or an activist, or is there a life outside of being an artist and an activist?
1: Well, there are things that I have to focus on. I focus on my social life. I focus on my work on my touring. I focus on keeping healthy. I focus on organizing the shows so that I reveal different things on every show. I try to make for something surprising, something dynamic, something that brings people some thoughts about politics, some thoughts about war, some thoughts about the people that have been here and helped us and, uh, That's what I try to do. My social life, I really depend upon the interaction with my friends and the continuity of my friendships. And it's a major piece of what I do. I spend a lot of my time calling, making Zoom contacts, setting up dinners, setting up this, that, the other thing, because I need to make contact with physically so that I can hear what's on other people's minds.
0: That's beautiful, though, that your friendships are just as important in your life. That's Very important. Do you make resolutions, New Year's resolutions?
1: I make resolutions every day. We have a habit at the New Year of writing down our problems, our desires, our wishes, and burning them in a walk, which we, we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are inside mm-hmm. in an apartment in New York, but we still burn the stuff in the in the kitchen <laughs> that. and that's always helpful and healing and we go to Christmas Eve at St. Thomas and I sing usually at New Year's Eve at St. Mm. John the Divine's which I'll do this year and we have a certain group that we meet for the Christmas Eve carols at St. Thomas so
0: we have traditional celebrations. That's beautiful I love that you sing at St. John the Divine what an incredible it's one of my great that is amazing. Well, I am so, so honored and delighted to meet you and to have time in your company. It's really a joy. Thank
1: you. It's been a pleasure. You're wonderful. You have a great holiday and uh, take care of yourself.
0: Judy Collins, everyone. What a gift to speak to such an inspiring icon. Now, let's check in with the creators of The Social Contract, George S. Corey and Cleo. For our new listeners by way of a quick catch-up, this podcast is a compliment to the book Presidential Conversations, as well as its newly released follow-up for young readers, Presidential Conversations for Kids. George writes the books, and Cleo makes them beautiful to look at. Quite a one-two punch, they are. Since debuting earlier this year, the social contract has been awarded a Platinum.com Award and a Gold Marcom Award. Through their creative work and civic outreach, including their involvement with such organizations as Bread for the City, National Building Museum, National Symphony Orchestra, and the D.C. Police Foundation, George and Cleo are committed to inspiring young minds and nurturing tomorrow's leaders. So I'm, of course, thrilled to announce that we'll be hearing and learning a lot more from this dynamic duo in Season 2 of The Social Contract. Launching President's Day Weekend in February 2023, our second season will have an exciting new vibe. This season will be based on the book Presidential Conversations for Kids. We'll be unpacking the social contract, specifically as it relates to kids, as we revisit lessons in leadership learned by our favorite pint-sized protagonists Georgie and Gigi Just as we have in Season 1, we'll be combining fiction, conversation, music, art, and presidential history to hopefully educate and entertain our growing legion of younger followers. I can't wait for you to hear it. And now, here's some of my conversation with our very own George Corey and Cleo. I hope you enjoy. George and Cleo, Happy Holidays! Congratulations on the just announced season two of the Social Contract podcast. I cannot wait. There is no better way to kick off our conversation today than to talk about Christmas traditions at the White House. A few fun anecdotes. Andrew Jackson famously hosted an indoor snowball fight at the White House holiday party. The snowballs were fortunately made of cotton, which is very charming. The Nixon administration saw the first presidential gingerbread house, and First Lady Jackie Kennedy is the one who began the tradition of selecting a theme for the White House Christmas tree. So I'm curious,
2: what are your holiday traditions? I will have to admit that we actually have had a snowball fight in the house. (laughs) They do make cotton balls that you can get, and there were no children involved. It was just us. We still have them, and funny enough, we keep finding them. Uh, That's great. I just love the lights Mm. in D.C. or in New York or or even in London, which does a really nice job. I can't wait to put them up right around Thanksgiving and keep them up because it just has that celebratory feel. Yes. When you see the kids come by and see the lights and then they ask when Santa is coming by because George came home one day and said, I saw a 12-foot Santa to go out in the yard. And I said, you didn't buy it? (laughs) I sent him back. And now we not only have Santa, but we have Santa's sleigh. I love it.
3: So they (laughs) garishly sit in front of the house. It's fantastic. I love that. It is a great period for us.
0: Cleo, the Christmas collages you did for the holiday edit are totally festive and totally fun. And I want to remind our listeners to check them out in the transcript. You're obviously into the holiday season. Is that something that's always been true for you? Is there a particular Christmas that sticks out in your mind?
2: It's always been a special time, but I think as we've gotten older, honestly, you can act younger, <laughs> act a little bit like a kid. Yeah. I think that it's become more and more special. For a couple of years, actually, we did Santa and Mrs. Claus. You dressed up? For
3: the police department.
2: Oh, We
3: did that for a number of years. And I have to tell you, the police officers really liked Mrs. Claus.
0: George, in the original presidential conversations, there's definitely a Christmas carol vibe with the ghosts of presidents past visiting then-President Trump in the middle of the night. So I wonder if that nod to Dickens was intentional.
3: It's an homage to Dickens and his brilliance. Yeah. It was really a thoughtful way of creating a storyline.
2: Yeah. We wanted a positive way to demonstrate why we had reverence towards the presidents. It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the character. That's what made us think of it. I don't know if you heard Obama's, one of his last speeches before this most recent election, but he listed off characteristics, honesty, courage, all these things. And it was that positive message that comes through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If we could
3: play that and then just flash Cynthia's word art that she did for the first book, Cleo's word art, it was magical. We watched the Obama speech and we looked at each other and it's like, wow, this should be the soundtrack. It was so good.
0: The underpinning of your combined creative works, certainly this podcast, it's the social contract. What does the social contract mean to each of you?
2: Living it respectfully in a civilized society. And I think that that's exactly what we're trying to say with character. If you have these characteristics... You'll respect each other. You'll be able to have a civilized discourse. You'll be able to behave or interact with each other in a way that makes sense for everybody because I think we've all demonstrated that working together, we can get a lot farther. I have to say that this last election, the midterms really did bring that home. You can say whatever you want, whether it was anti-abortion or if it was the economy or whatever. If you think about it, at the underpinnings of all of that. It's all these characteristics as human beings that make us better and we're better together.
0: Yeah, we all do better when we all do better. George, what about you?
2: People and their character is what matters.
3: And that's what comes across in the book, the short stories or the codas and PC4K and what I think has come through in this beautiful podcast that you've managed and performed.
2: It's what you're really talking to is good faith. Good faith, yes. One of the things they've learned that you know, if somebody will lie or commit fraud to your face, you can't do anything about it, right? I mean, that's all you can do is continue trying to understand what's happening. But that honesty and integrity is what we rely on. Yeah, we depend on that.
0: How do you take that concept and make it understandable for kids in the presidential conversations for kids themed book and our upcoming podcast, our season two?
3: Everything we've written has always been for young adults and politically aware kids. Even when we wrote Presidential Conversations, at first it was going to be for young adults and the publishers decided to produce it as an adult work, which I thought was a great compliment. The bottom line is we can communicate to children because we aren't lecturing to them.
2: Yeah, and I think that doing that and then wrapping it in a story with kind of actual things that occur, because those stories are interesting. Yeah
3: yeah PC 4K the difference is that we don't just have a presidential figure meeting past presidential figures we have two 10-year-old Georgie and Gigi who are really 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 cool and they don't just observe past presidents or be lectured at they participate yeah. and they make a difference and We wanted kids to read that and say, I could have done that.
2: It's all around in just two words. It's us versus them. Yes. The more you believe that all of us are us, that is ultimately the social contract. It's if you start thinking of people as them, you take away humanity and all that. So if you think of us, we're working on an additional book that's more art based and younger. Your question was, how do you explain that? I haven't figured it out completely, but the us concept helps because you can explain to a child when they're with their friends and that type of thing and when they're thinking of people differently that that may be a way to get at it.
3: There's that proverb from Chaim Pochak, one of his books, that uh, the estranged son and father and the father says, please come home. And he goes, I can't come. He goes, well, just take one step and I'll take the other 99 uh, steps to you.
0: George, that's beautiful. That that leaves me in tears. Thank you.
3: It's true, though. I, uh, it's all we've uh, talked about and written about since. Well, it's beautiful.
0: Thank you so much. George and Cleo, everyone. Another great gift. I always love my conversations with these two. In closing, I want to share these words from President Clinton's 1999 holiday message to the country. Love... Peace, joy, hope. So many beautiful words are woven through our Christmas songs and prayers and traditions. Let us resolve to build a future where all people learn to love one another and to live together in harmony, where our children know true joy, and where our hopes for peace, freedom, and prosperity for all are finally realized. Huh. Those sentiments resonate as much today as when they were first shared, on the eve of the dawn of the 21st century. And in honor of our very special guest this episode, Judy Collins, I'd like to share a quote from her as well. I was raised to speak out about politics and the world around me. I would do it whether I was in the public or not. It is the way I was taught, the American way. I cannot think of a sentiment that better embodies the spirit of this podcast. I want to thank George and Cleo. They are always such a delight. I hear their books, Presidential Conversations and Presidential Conversations for Kids, make great holiday gifts. And of course, an extra special thank you to the incomparable Judy Collins. In celebration of her appearance on The Social Contract, Cleo has also shared a stunning new work aptly titled send in the clowns you can see it along with a very clio christmas in the show transcript as well as on the and keep an eye on the and georgescory.com in the coming months for more information about season two of the social contract and more We welcome you to follow The Social Contract, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This has been The Social Contract Podcast, created by George S. Corey and Cleo, produced and hosted by Tavia Gilbert, associate producer Katie Flood, music courtesy of Listen Audio, mix and master by Kayla Elrod. This has been a podcast from Listen Audio in association with TalkBox Productions. Thank you for listening and wishing you all very happy holidays.